0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of Donji writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and I am recording to you live from (laughs) my desk that has treats.
1: I'm Cameron, and I am not recording live, so that's going to make this interesting. (laughs) And I am in a room that is approaching the appropriate number of skulls for our current day and age.
2: The appropriate number of skulls? That was dark. It just got dark really fast.
3: That's that's how Cameron always is, though, right? <laughs> it's true.
1: It's the first draft. If the reader response is too negative, we can tone it down on the next one.
3: <laughs> I'm Kristen and I'm recording to you from Chateau d'If, where I am plotting my revenge for having been falsely imprisoned. Oh okay. lovely. What was
1: the what was the what was the accusation that was that was false?
3: uh apparently i support napoleon she does Uh-oh.
4: wow
3: he lost
0: kristen
4: <laughs> well
2: look i told you it was a false a
0: false accusing <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay i'm caitlin and i am recording from the depths of my closet i'm sitting next to my boot from when i had surgery last year I didn't miss it, and I'm kind of sad to have found it again.
4: Why do you still have it?
2: Well, people have gotten hurt so many times in my family, I feel like it would be throwing money away to throw it away Uh, at this point. My husband had to have surgery right after I did, and so we're like, don't throw away anything. Okay, (laughs) Okay.
4: makes sense. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. I'm Ben. I'm recording in my bedroom, which is my office and also my wife's office, and also a children's play area that's what this room has become over the last week
3: very multi-use
0: awesome so as you can tell we are all safely nested at our homes except Kristen, who is in a barren prison cell um (laughs) but we're excited to be talking with you it's good to be back together at least virtually a big welcome today to our special guest ben grange who is an author with the l perkins literary agency did i say that right it's not written down for me this time
4: that is correct
0: (laughs) that is my agency yeah (laughs) Um, Thanks for coming on the show, Ben. We're glad to have you.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So as you can probably tell from our um, glittering dialogue up to this point, today we are going to be talking (laughs) about writing good dialogue. So real fast, let's throw out some quick examples of writers, books, or passages that we think do this well and just say why we like them. This is a pure fangirl, fanboy section. Uh,
3: I feel like... I'm obligated to mention the Queen's Thief series by Megan Mullen turner (laughs) I think all of us have mentioned this specifically for the dialogue at various points throughout uh, our career as podcasters. But I think they do a really good job of saying more implying more than they actually say so you always feel really smart when you figure it out and i stole that from alia but she summed it so well that i had to <laughs> it's true now you have to say all of your
2: other ones and you're the only one who's going to be talking this whole time kristen <laughs> crap
3: uh alia can take one of mine
1: we could recite this lovely giant block of text you have in our outline like
3: <laughs> you asked there for examples a- <laughs> i don't know what you wanted a
1: lot of information on that
4: right there like you could just read that whole thing and that would take up our entire time.
2: Also, it would qualify as like one of those readings that everyone's doing live right now for quarantine for poor children. This one would be for teenagers though. <laughs> oh
0: yes. Very nice. We can totally skip this question if nobody else is. No, I actually
4: I think is I think this is a good question and something that we need. <laughs> okay. I could be the king who wants to do the queen.
3: But no, you guys don't actually have to read it. God. I figured we could like post it somewhere. So, like, we could do that. We can do that. So we don't actually have to read so much text. Awesome. Or we can refer
2: people to. I don't know how much text you're allowed to post without infringing
3: copyright, but Goodreads could... gets away with a lot. So I'm that's more
1: Educational, and I feel like the line I remember is ten percent.
3: That's got to be less
1: than ten percent of a book.
3: And wait, you can do anything as long as you properly cite it. I know Chicago. Okay, Ben was saying something before we all started talking about I'm, this. Go uh, ahead, Ben.
1: I'm not
4: gonna. I'm not gonna comment on any of that right there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm one a, person who might actually know does the not answer represent to these legal questions. <laughs> know. But actually, you no. Know,
4: to the to the question though, some examples. I think one that I would point out here uh, is Raina Telgemeier. She's uh, she writes graphic novels, which is a, a little bit different than you know, doing dialogue for a prose book. But it's, uh, you know, it's the same concept. And I think it's pretty important because uh, a graphic novel, the only words you're reading most of the time are dialogue. And they've got to be really on point because most of the book is told through through image. And so your dialogue has to really advance the story without saying the same thing that the images are saying and without, you know, telling the reader what the plot is. and And that's, that's basically how, how you're supposed to do it in, in writing a novel as well. So, uh, definitely Ray Natalmeyer, Smile, Guts, those books are, are fantastic.
2: My kids love those books. I actually, that's one of the points that I wanted to make is a lot of times dialogue. Um, when I'm reading stuff from writers who are just starting out and maybe I'm jumping ahead here, I feel like a lot of times the dialogue just like doubles down on stuff that is already expressed in the blocking or in the internal thought or whatever. And it's just taking up space instead of, moving something forward or telling you more about the characters i wanted to say that i love all of the dialogue in um the j christoph amy kaufman books which is, is like illuminae and then they're also doing aurora rising right now because they are mostly it's like the graphic novel thing again where it's not a traditional story setting the new um aurora rising books are but they're still really snappy with their dialogue in those it forces them to use dialogue in a very different way. And that's actually probably a really great exercise for writers to do is if you take away everything else and only, or not if you take away everything else, if you use your dialogue in addition to some kind of like visual format, how it changes, it might help you to know what's important.
1: I think we've said a few times that the gold standard of dialogue is that you can tell who's talking without any, any tags.
2: Absolutely true.
0: And that's a good transition though, because Most of us aren't to the point yet where we can distinguish who's talking 100% of the time. So we do still need some dialogue tags in most writing, but how can you use those well? I feel like those are very easy to overuse, especially when you add in blocking. What are some tips for using dialogue tags and blocking well? I can go first. I was going to say, is this
4: directed at a specific person (laughs) No, who's who's answering this question first?
2: I will because I said so. Caitlin
1: only says she's amazing at blocking.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Don't mock me. (laughs) These guys always, they're like my alpha readers, and they're always like, Caitlin, none of this makes sense. (laughs) 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 Blocking never makes sense in the first draft. I think it's really important to remember that dialogue tags need to either tell you more about what the person is saying, or more about the way that they feel as they are saying it, or what's happening during the scene and shouldn't just be empty. I cannot tell you how many times I've read dialogue tags that are like, she blinked, she walked two steps forward. And it's not that the author is trying to establish something about the room or about the relationships. It's just that they're like, oh, there's supposed to be a dialogue tag here so that you know who's talking. And if you use dialogue tags that way, it will feel like bloated and awful and terrible. So don't do that.
1: Yeah, Di- dialogue tags should really only be there to convey some piece of character setting, etc. information that you can't get in the dialogue.
2: Or that you would prefer to get, like, prefer to make your reader feel smart because they picked it up rather than, I mean, because a character could be saying, yes, I'm fine. But they could also be, like, sweating and moving towards the door. And because you're reading it, you get that subtext. And then There's there's a
1: combination between the tags and what's being said that creates, you know, a, a, a juxtaposition that you can't do just with dialogue.
0: Well, in my mind, the tags are equally, they say as much as the dialogue says, right? So we have to use them very wisely. We can't just waste them on a throwaway comment. Everything the reader sees that the speaker is saying or doing or sounding needs to contribute to their character.
4: No, I think actually um, one thing I want to point out here is that when we're talking about dialogue tags, we are talking about the, the, the words that come after the dialogue that kind of support what the character is already saying so we've got an example of you know character says something and then you've got the character's name and then you've got the word said in most cases in you know 90 percent of the cases 90 percent of the time you want to have the word said there sometimes it's okay to use something else besides said and then what follows after that is you know the tag of supporting the dialogue and my what i like to see most often in 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 writing is, is, you know, less emphasis on the dialogue tag and more emphasis on making your characters dialogue unique so that you can tell who's talking without needing their name after the, after the words, you know, the words that they use, the the way that they say, phrase their sentences. I mean, each of us in this podcast right now, we all use different vocabulary. We all phrase our sentences differently so if you like just on a on an analytical uh, analytical level break that apart and do that for each of your characters and i know that sounds daunting and like a ton of work but really that's how human beings are and if you want to have a realistic character that's what you're going to do so more emphasis on how the words are said in the dialogue and less emphasis on you know a tag to qualify that dialogue and then again More emphasis on the narrative that follows, because those are going to be the things that your readers remember about your story more than, you know, a simple tag at the end of your dialogue.
3: Yeah. To that point, I think the strongest dialogues or dialogue, uh, sorry, I'm really sick right now. Uh, not with COVID-19, but, uh, my brain is not working really. I'm sorry Um, you're sick. It's okay. So, I think the strongest dialogue is formulated in a way where the words itself, they give you an idea of the emotion behind them and the way that the other character responds to it does as well. So like, the best dialogue doesn't actually need an adverb afterwards to tell us how they said it because you can tell because of the words they're saying. No
4: dialogue needs adverbs after it.
3: Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Please tell J.K. Rowling <laughs> any, text
4: anywhere, any <laughs> here's first. that little heartbroken awe from someone
1: can we do a can we do a quick example because i think we actually have a short one that wouldn't take okay. very long at the end from so from six of crows i think as an example there actually are dialogue tags here but if you've read the book you could read through this section without them and you could figure out who's saying what so the crew leader asks what's the easiest way to steal a man's wallet and we get a series of responses one person says a knife to the throat Another person says a gun to the back. Another person says poison in his cup. Another person says you're all horrible. You could make a an easy game out of guessing which character said which line. Because it it fits each of them perfectly.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great example. That's one common problem that turns up a lot in dialogue. But another one is the notorious info dump. So to tackle this problem, how can you get your point across in dialogue, how can you get across what you want the dialogue to convey to the reader without it feeling forced?
4: Well, I mean, I'm just going to interject here as the first per- person to speak because you should never use your dialogue to tell backstory that your characters already know. That that never try to get your point across that way.
2: That is called maiden butlering, right?
4: <laughs> yes, it is, and mm-hmm. it's it is it is the worst type of uh, mistake that you can make because it just is so boring it's okay to let your narrative give small pieces of, of information about the backstory as you go along and then have your characters talk to each other without feeling the need to reference that backstory or tell that backstory within their, with their dialogue because they already know it. It it enables you to get to your point faster, whatever the point you're trying to make is, uh, you'll get there faster if your characters aren't talking about, you know, their histories or the history of the world or this war that happened, or, you know, this thing that this person stole at one point in their past, if both of the characters know the explanation already. So get your point across in your narrative before you get to your dialogue, and it'll allow your character's dialogue to feel more natural.
3: Well, and all of that should be subtext informing your dialogue. So get that across anyway, you don't have to explicitly state any of it. Something that I thought of when I was looking at this question is that dialogue
2: needs to make sense um it needs to progress in a oh, way really? that makes sense well i mean <laughs> you, i'm sure that you've read many things where it doesn't necessarily where people try to force their characters into like weird spots where they're revealing information or emphasizing something that doesn't make sense for the conversation and so it's really important to remember like what kind of person your character is like are they an aggressive person or a passive aggressive person are they uh i don't know somebody who likes to hide and not say anything Are they the type of person who just listens? And then make sure that you are consistent in the way that you let them talk and you don't ever force your character to do something that's not gonna make sense. It's the same thing as like what Ben was saying, where characters are not gonna sit down and be like, Do you remember that time when we were at war together? Like it just it <laughs> yeah. doesn't really happen in real life. And your reader can feel it too. That's why the the Maiden Butler thing, which is referring to plays where the Maid and the Butler come out at the beginning of a play and say, Did you hear about Mrs. O'Leary? I I think she kicked a lantern over and everybody knows it's fake. It's just allowing the audience to get up to speed with what's about to happen in the play but it does not work in books because it's a different format and it just doesn't. I don't know if it works in plays either.
4: <laughs> One thing I think we need to really be aware of with dialogue is that, you know, this is getting a little bit more advanced than simply sitting down to try to write words, but dialogue is, you know, the words that your character say are are informed by everything that makes your character who they are. And on top of that, words then have an effect on everyone around them. So the things that I say cause emotions in other people, and those emotions will cause other people to say certain words. And those certain words will cause emotions in everyone else in the room. So, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a cyclical reactionary thing, dialogue. And if you can get into who your characters are, and how they respond to certain situations then you'll be more equipped to handle how their dialogue needs to come across on the page and then your dialogue will start to sound different from your other dialogue spoken by your your other characters and and that's how that's really how you make your your characters sound different is you let their dialogue be informed by who they are and the, the events that have shaped their lives and you let the dialogue that they hear, you know, and and obviously the actions that, that are acting upon them, you know, show their
1: emotions. I feel like I have to address that there is such a thing as two old comrades sitting down and talking about that time they were at war together. There are entire books. The, the, the premise is nothing but <laughs> yes. two people talking about that time they were at war together. But there's a difference between, you know, two old comrades sitting in a bar talking about the war together and, These
2: are communist comrades, apparently.
1: Well, obviously, um, <laughs> they're the, they're the ones that put Kristen in jail. <laughs> oh yeah, that makes sense now. <laughs> Where you know they're bonding, they're reminiscing, they're being nostalgic. It, there's there's something else going on, as opposed to protagonist hero just walking into town and the guard just randomly starts spouting off about that time he was in the war because it's important for the protagonist to know there was a war. Yes,
4: that's so, a very good point.
0: Yeah. So what I'm taking away from that then is that context is the key if if the context makes sense you can get away with a lot of things but the context has to make sense first
4: I feel like I feel like what Cameron's trying to get at here is that if your characters are are telling backstory to get information across to the reader so that the reader will understand the context,
1: then it's the wrong way to do it yeah, then it's a problem if they're telling a story because they want another character in the scene to know the story. And the fact that the story was told is going to have ramifications on the plot. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Then...
0: That makes sense.
4: And I think, really, it has a lot to do with, you know, if the author is trying to get information to the reader. That's the that's the most important part there. Because if the author is trying to get information to the reader by telling the story so that the reader will understand the context, even though all of the characters in the room know the story, then it's not helpful at all but if the characters are there like Cameron was saying for the purpose of reminiscing then that in and of itself is fine
1: I I think another, another thing I want to throw in is that info dump is kind of info dump is a sliding scale it's not a true false so some dialogue can be more info dumpy than other dialogue but still be way less info dumpy and still other dialogue. You have like the king of Infodump, which is someone standing up in front of a crowded room and saying, and here's the world history starting 10,000 years ago to the present, I will be going year by year. There's that, it's the and less then like in the, of... middle ground, in the middle ground, you have like a paragraph long that time I was in the war at Moscow
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: thing. Okay. And then on the far opposite end, you have someone screaming die as they leap across the battlefield with a sword out. So They're they're dumping information, but there's a sliding scale amount of how problematic it is. Yeah, I think maybe we're getting at. Yeah, I think this is all very
3: good.
0: Okay, awesome. We're out of time for this part of the podcast. Does anyone have any final things they want to say?
3: Yes, I do. I also I so some of the best advice I got regarding dialogue is that dialogue in books sounds nothing like the way real people talk. If you have ever sat down to try and transcribe somebody else speaking. We would have to have a million m dashes and the sentences would start over again and they circle back and what we say makes no sense at all half the time. And dialogue and prose has this really important job of getting to the point um, in a way that spoken dialogue doesn't necessarily have, like in real life. Um, Because a lot of what we say is meaningless, like, uh, hi, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. How about you? Like, that means nothing. And in a book where you are so limited on the number of words you can use, you have to make sure that every word that you're using is doing double duty. We talk about that a lot. And I think with dialogue especially, we have to be sure that what we have our characters say isn't seeking realism as far as what dialogue actually sounds like, but more like realism as to what dialogue is supposed to do all about conveying information if that makes sense just like yeah. all of the characters
2: in books that we wish we could be like we wish we could speak like characters in books yes I exactly. makes sense.
0: okay awesome now we'll transition to the next part of the podcast where we critique an audience submission and model a writing group. A quick review, we try to be non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to see the full submission of this text and all of our notes, you can see our website. See them on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So, a brief summary on this week's chapter... An apprentice blacksmith, or stone shaper as they're called in this world, has her day's work thrown into the fire by her drunken master and she vows to get revenge. So, very exciting place to start. What are some things that we liked?
4: Well, I'm just going to jump right in. I thought that this passage was fantastic. I loved the premise. the, The fact that we've got this female apprentice doing something that we... I normally would see, I I don't know if this is like a medieval setting or a historical setting uh, or fantastical setting. I'm I'm not sure. I didn't get really a sense of that in here, even though it says fantasy at the very top. Now I'm seeing this. (laughs) Um, So this is a fantastical setting, I guess. Uh, We kind of get this gender flipped role of of a woman doing this job. And uh, the author does a really good job of building the tension in the few pages that we get. We we establish who the character is, what the character's desires are. We we get this really emotional conflict at the end of the chapter. Uh, I thought it was a really good setup and uh, wanted to see more.
3: I thought there was some really nice word choice in here. Um, One sentence I particularly marked was... Um, Embers is working on the ring and it says she bashed it again and again until the gold was as thin and as long as a piece of dull yellow yarn, which I thought was very evocative. I wasn't sure how
2: long the yarn was supposed to be exactly. But aside from that, I liked that line too.
0: <laughs> and I'll second what Ben already said. I thought it was super cool to have a female blacksmith. And um, to me, that's making promises that the rest of the story won't fall into kind of cliche fantasy book, small town village Roles
1: either i'm gonna be super pedantic and useless especially since the book refers to them as stone shapers but i think technically since she's working with gold she's a goldsmith which is a distinct profession from a blacksmith
0: okay i don't know my fantasy worlds. Um, well, that, well that's
4: okay i this was actually something that i had a question about i don't know if we're transitioning into things that need a second look yet but that was one of the things that i marked specifically was um throughout the whole passage She is constantly referred to as a stone shaper, and I had no idea what that meant in terms of, you know, this world. Like, typically, if I read stone shaper uh, or stone shaping in this kind of a context, I would think that this person was working as like a mason or a stone carver uh, or something like that, but she's crafting a golden ring, which, you know, is a goldsmith. Like, uh, like like Cameron was mentioning mentioning, uh, so I don't know if like, in this world, stone shaper means something specific. Uh,
2: I wondered if there was a magical application that we just hadn't seen yet, and so yeah. I, I had that question too.
1: That's that's also kind of where where my brain went. I just I, I kind of assumed that since we're using stone shaper instead of. Goldsmith or Silversmith or whatever, that it has some additional meaning that doesn't exist in the real world. And I kind of wish that we'd gotten more of a hint of what that would actually be.
4: Yeah. I mean, if, we, if that's something that is actually part of this book, six pages in, we're going to want to know, you know, even just a tiny bit about it, even if it doesn't have major implications within the context of this chapter.
0: On a different note, I um, I thought there were some really great descriptions of body language and what she's doing here, but at times they made it feel like I was watching the scene play out from outside her head instead of inside her head. A few places this particularly stood out to me is whenever her posture is described, it was really telling to her mood, but it made the perspective feel external since I don't usually notice my posture But other people notice my posture and I as a character notice other people's posture, but I don't notice my own.
3: Yeah, I think um, I'm going to agree with that. There are also a couple of moments where it's talking about her eyes and it's like her brassy almond eyes or her molten copper eyes. And that's another thing I don't normally like if you're in somebody's head, you don't normally notice what color your eyes are in a given moment. So just be careful about what voice you're in.
2: Kind of along with that, I I agree with what they're saying. It felt quite external, which I I feel like is just a missed opportunity because the closer you are to a character, the easier it is to get your reader on board and to identify with them and to to want to keep reading about them. Um, I felt like the the close observance of each expression she made and like the the descriptions and where they were dropped slowed things down quite a bit for me. Mm-hmm. How did you guys feel about that? No, I agree. I felt like this was a pretty tense moment. Having your boss stumble into work and you're alone and obviously already afraid of him a little bit should be like a very, very tense moment. And I felt like there were so many moments that slowed it down that I was just waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. And then it didn't for a long time.
4: I agree with that too. Yeah. Uh,
3: I think part of what makes it feel slow is that this is probably wordier than it needs to be. Yeah,
4: absolutely. There's
3: a lot of adjectives, a lot of double verbs when only probably only needed one strong one instead.
4: There are, sorry. No, keep going. I was going to say there are a lot of sentences that repeat each other as well. Yeah. They're, they're basically, they use different words, but they say the same thing. I, my biggest suggestion, it lies on, on that exact, exact topic would be to just go through the entire work line by line and search for ways to rephrase things to flow better. Or rearrange your sentences so that you don't need certain word patterns or choices. That's going to take a while to do, but it's something that will definitely help the pacing in this work. Because there, like truly, there are a lot of tense moments in this chapter. They just get bogged down in the wordiness or in the longevity of your paragraphs. Um, so that would be my suggestion. Really, just go through, trim the word count down. Uh, cut out the repetitive sentences and try not to use so many, so many adjectives. And that'll really help.
2: So I, you guys can argue with me if you want based on your notes. I think Cameron is on my team, but you guys might not agree. The rest of you from the first mention of her boss coming in. I was confused about why Ember was acting the way that she was. Not necessarily, because there are lots of times when you deal with bad behavior from a boss because you need to keep your job or you need to get something done or whatever else. Like, it's something that happens in life and that people can identify with. But I didn't get any context from her as to why she was doing it. Like, I I would have loved just a little bit more to know what was on the line that she had to finish that ring that night. I mean, I knew it was due the next day, but like... I mean, getting roughed up by your boss is kind of a big consequence if the
3: only thing that happens is that the ring is delayed. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's a question of if this sort of thing has been happening like a lot in the past, which it sounds like it has, I'm not totally sure I understand why now is the time which is like, yeah, I'm going to break its chair. I'm going to destroy him. I-, I felt like I was missing that.
2: Yeah,
1: the the deciding that this was the final straw, this is what's going to make me break his chair, this is what's going to make me seek revenge, that was more what I had an issue with. I think, I mean, it's not a great thing to lean on, but I was able to lean on kind of the the pseudo-medieval European fantasy tropes that say, if you lose your apprenticeship, that's the end of the world. That, That kind of carried the motivation for me. I think you'd be better off not relying on that, but whatever. But for me, it was obviously he has a history of being a violent drunk. Enough that she's immediately afraid when he comes in. So my question is, what is it about this incident that serves as an inciting incident? Why why hasn't she left before? I think that's what I'm missing.
2: Well, and also, just even on an even smaller scale, there's a point during the actual incident where she yells at him. At first, she's very subservient, and she just tries to, like, take it and tries to protect herself. And then finally, he, like, hurts her, kind of. He, like, pushes her down, and then she yells at him. And so I'm not even sure where, like, what changed, I guess, to make her want to risk that but to not have risked it
3: yet. Yeah, the power dynamic is a little confusing in that final end bit.
4: I think if she, I don't know, this might not be a a good, a good suggestion based on where you're going with the story, but I think if she's crafting something personal and he destroys it, you'll get a lot more, uh, I guess it will be a lot more believable, her reaction at the end of the chapter, because, you know, just like Cameron was saying, if you're going to lean into the trope of, you know, her losing her apprenticeship because a project is late, that's that's not as strong as her doing something on her own time with materials that she bought herself. That maybe she's making for somebody besides herself. Then then that elicits a lot more of an emotional response.
3: Yeah, or even something that took a longer amount of time because I think this was just like a one day project. Yeah, this does
1: give the impression that she just kind of does it <laughs> like, in an afternoon.
3: Like it, Little Women, when Joe's book gets burned, it's depressing because the book is something she's been working on so long. It's it's a lot more emotionally impactful than like a short story she jotted down one day, getting tossed in the trash. So that's something else to consider. Yeah, after
2: she after it gets ruined, she's like, "Man, I'm going to be late for dinner because I have to mm-hmm. stay." Yeah. So.
1: Yeah, it, it doesn't quite. As opposed to, I guess we're just we're just having a prescriptive party. You know, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, if this doesn't get done, I'm going to get fired. My sister's not going to eat, yeah. or I'm not going to have the money to support myself, so I'm going to have to marry the butcher. You know, it's... right? <laughs> Con- consequences that are more like like I'm not saying like the the portrayal of the, this this horrible human being as her boss. That is plenty of reason to leave the situation, but she hasn't. So we need to know what what additional straw is noticeable enough to make her leave the situation that it would have been great if she could have left a long time ago.
0: Okay, we're we're out of time. We're a little over, but so everyone finish up with your last thoughts.
4: I was just going to say at the beginning, we do establish like her desire to be a master stone shaper. And she wants to you know, be the very best. She, she does like no like one, one ever, ever was. was. Yes. <laughs> um we established mm-hmm. that at the beginning but we don't really get any more than that like i was saying earlier we we that's one of the things that i liked about the 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 piece was that early on in in chapter 1 early pages we we get this desire out of her but we don't really establish like we've been like we've been saying why she's sticking around in this specific place we we know she hasn't really left her village much or seen much of the world outside. And that could be based on how old she is or, you know, social norms in this world, things that we haven't established yet. But, and, I, and that's, I think, one of the underlying problems is that there's a kind of lack of world building uh, in this chapter that doesn't enable us to understand why she's still here.
0: Awesome. Okay. Um, that's our time for today. But to this author, thank you so much for submitting. We loved reading your work. And Ben, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Our next guest will be Kirsten White, New York Times bestselling author of the Paranormalcy Trilogy and I Darken series, The Guinevere Deception and many other fabulous books that you all should check out
2: actually we'll be we'll be live the day after this podcast comes out so if you want a double dose of lit service you can tune in to our youtube channel the day after this podcast comes out on thursday um the 26th
0: we will be live streaming at seven thirty mountain time so if you want to see our beautiful faces and kirsten white's beautiful face tune in then a big thank you to our intern Lindsay owens she is amazing and we appreciate everything she does if you want to ask us questions, tell us we're awesome, or what about how your writing is going, you can find us on Litservice at, on Twitter at Litservice, or on Facebook and Instagram as at Litservice Podcast. We're currently running an Instagram challenge with the first chapter critique as a prize. Or you can email us at LitservicePodcast at gmail.com. Please remember to share the podcast, especially right now with everyone holed up in baths, made of hand sanitizer. We can all do with a sense of normalcy and community. For Litservice, thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. <laughs>